Josh mentioned, this is the beginning of a new series that will probably take just a couple months for us to get through, and we're excited to be able to get, begin this today. And so this morning, I'm just, or afternoon, I'm going to go through uh, just the first two verses and try to provide an overview for us. Second Peter, verses 1 and 2. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, my mind and heart are flooded with so many reasons to give thanks to You. We give thanks for the beautiful worship songs that You've gifted the church with and the worship leaders You've gifted our church with. God, I'm thankful for Your Word, its clarity, its power, its encouragement. Lord, I'm thankful for... Uh, the body of believers worshiping with us today, visitors and friends and members. God, it is so encouraging to be with the body of Christ. And I'm encouraged to know that we are not left alone, but you have given us your word and you have given us yourself and the Holy Spirit. And we pray that you would Strengthen us, that you would give us understanding, give us insight, empower me to help your word become clear so we might know how we should properly apply it to our lives. Lord, we, we ask these things because we need your assistance to grow, to continue to grow in grace and peace. And so we ask these things in the name of our precious Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. Providentially, the first song that we sang today um, turns out to be what I want to actually talk about in introdu- introducing Second Peter. Um, Robert Robinson was a young man who uh, was, uh, his father died at a young age and he'd kind of fallen in with the wrong crowd and one day he decided he wanted to go with a gang of ruffians to Heckle, the great English preacher, George Whitfield. And it turns out that day, George Whitfield was preaching on the text, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? From Matthew 3, 7. And it turns out that Robinson was deeply troubled by what he heard. Although he did not immediately turn, he remained under a deep sense of sin for a the next three years, but he eventually does, he eventually did repent at the age of 20 and immediately at that point sent out to become a preacher. But what he is best known for is not his sermons, but this song that he wrote, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, which is what we started our service with today. And in the last stanza, Robert had written this, Prone to wander, Lord. I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, O take and seal it, 
Seal it for thy courts above. Remarkably, what many theologians have found troubling about Robinson is at the end of his life, he did seem to wander. He ended up becoming a close friend of Joseph Priestley, who was the founder of Unitarianism, which rejected um, the gospel and particularly Christ as their Lord. And although there is no clear evidence that he actually embraced Unitarian theology, it does appear that he became that he came terrifyingly close to doing so. He did actually preach a number of sermons where he articulated a, a genuine belief in in the truth now, after befriending Priestley. But nonetheless, terrifyingly close to leaving the faith. And I mention this because this hymn, I think, has been one of the most encouraging hymns to believers since the time it was written. Because we all can identify with his cry for help. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Our hearts resonate with his description of feeling pulled away. Pulled away either to yield to temptation. We feel the pull and tug of the world. Our fallen flesh still craves sin. It still doubts. And even though we might uh, die for the sake of the gospel, we still feel temptation. And so we resonate with these precious words. An elder I trained under for seven years when I was preparing for ministry in Spokane. Um, so much of my ministry experience came from his oversight and leadership. And I remember he used to constantly pray, Lord, guard me from falling away. Help me to finish well. And that struck me because I thought, this is kind of a pillar of the faith. It's a guy I looked up to incredibly. And yet he would pray, Lord, help me to finish well. Well, it was exposed that after um, I was sent to seminary, he had engaged in sexual immorality and he disqualified himself from ministry. Another one of my close friends who now lives here in Portland went to serve as a missionary in Pakistan. And while he was in Pakistan, he, came, he became introduced to the writings of Brian McLaren and some other liberal authors. And he eventually... Um, left the faith. He rejected Christianity outright. A good friend of um, Julie's in mind and uh, Andy Tobin, who preached here not too long ago. And I mention these things because the threat of falling away is real. And I say this as a Calvinist. I believe once a person is saved, that Jesus will keep him. We have texts that we'll look at today that confirm that. And yet... People do leave the faith and get caught up in immorality. So we must ask ourselves, how do I keep from falling away? How do I keep from drifting? How do I keep from getting caught up into some sort of sin or to leave the Lord I love? And even if we're not on the precipice of turning away from the Lord, we can resonate with the cry of the man in the Gospels who said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Because we all know what it's like to struggle with periodic doubts. We struggle to live out our faith in accordance to what we know. 
We're convinced of what the Bible says is true, and yet we doubt at times. So how can we strengthen our faith? How can I keep from falling? How can I keep others from falling? And this is the concern of Peter in his second epistle. He wants to guard his beloved friends from wandering away from the faith, and he wants to see them grow up in the faith so that they won't be taken away, that they'd be firmly established in what they have previously heard. And so before we get into how Peter deals with the threat that is facing these believers, let's look at the first two verses that will actually present us a good overview of the letter and his argument here, and also some good background to the letter as well. So beginning in verse 1, the text says, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. So we are presented with the author. The author is clear. We know the author is Peter for two particular reasons. He claims to be Peter. He calls himself Simeon Peter. Don't get thrown off by that. That's just the the Hebrew spelling of his name. So Simon Peter. And second of all, he also refers to his own personal experience when he describes seeing Jesus along with James and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. It was He was one of only two other people that saw Jesus, and he refers to that experience here in the letter in chapter 2. But what's most important is to recognize Peter identifies himself with two terms. He could use many other descriptions, but he chooses to describe himself as a servant and an apostle. This tells us a lot. The word servant is a common designation of the apostles. Um, Many translations say servant. Uh, Probably a better translation would be slave. They describe themselves as slaves. And they use this term because they understood that salvation created in, in, in them a brand new identity. They were no longer to live for themselves. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14... He describes the work of all the apostles when he says, For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. That is, they've died to themselves. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And he describes the new creation in verses 16 and 17. And Peter describes himself as a slave because he wants us to to recognize that he's not writing simply for personal reasons. He's writing because he is a slave of Jesus Christ. So this isn't just a correspondence that we might like write to our friends. He's writing out of an obligation that he has as Christ's slave. He recognizes, as Paul did in 1 Corinthians 9.16, That if he does not proclaim the truth Jesus gave to him, woe is him. As Paul says, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Woe to Peter if he does not faithfully proclaim all that Jesus called him to proclaim. So he's fulfilling his responsibility. He's not simply writing as the words of man, but this is the revelation of Christ the Lord. And that's why Peter describes himself both as a slave as well as an apostle. The word apostle 
comes from the Greek word apostolos, which is derived from the Greek word apostello, which means to commission. So an apostle was a commissioned one, one who was sent. What were they sent from? Well, Jesus Christ sent the apostles out in Matthew 28, 20, a very familiar verse. And he said, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Okay, this is what Peter is trying to do. He was commissioned to teach, to, to preach the gospel and to baptize and to teach all that Jesus had commanded him. And so he's fulfilling this in writing this letter. He is teaching these believers, the recipients of this letter, what Christ had commanded him previously. How they're supposed to live out Christ's teachings. The apostles were under obligation to teach everything Christ taught them, neither adding nor subtracting anything. And Peter clarifying his identity here is really important because it tells us a lot about his authority as well as his heart and why he's writing. The major point in this letter, as we'll see, is Peter is combating false teaching that is threatening the church. And by identifying himself with the two words, servant and apostle, it distinguishes Peter from those false teachers. Peter was a slave of Christ and an apostle of Christ. So he's not motivated by temporal personal gain in his ministry like the false teachers were. Moreover, his teaching comes directly from the Lord. It's not developed from conjecture or logic or his own personal inclination. He's not saying, well, these are my thoughts. What do you think? This is the teaching of the Lord. So Peter's teaching is distinct from these other false teachers that would try to lead them astray. This teaching comes from Christ, ultimately. It's not some individualistic personal philosophy about life. As he says in chapter 2, verse 16... We did not follow cleverly devised myths. The Christian faith is not built on cleverly devised myths. It's the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not personal conjecture. And this is what distinguishes the church from corporations and other institutions. Just as Peter's authority was tied to his responsibility to share Christ's words, likewise... So does the authority of the church and likewise the church leadership. An elder or pastor's authority does not come from the congregation. It does not come from a denomination. It does not come from a board of trustees or an elder board. Their authority comes from and only from the word of God. So although these things should hold him accountable, that's not the source of the authority. And this is what prevents false teaching from developing, because the authority is objective. It's something that can be tested and looked to. Everything we hear needs to be measured up with the Scripture. Does that idea line up with the totality of Scripture? And that's why the qualification of elders is distinguished primarily on two grounds. First of all, that they are able to teach, and secondly, that they are, li- they are living lives that are above reproach. They're not set apart to be elders so that they can be 
honored as some sort of super Christian, but they're set apart so that they can fulfill the work that Christ has commanded the church to do. To uphold their responsibility to teach what Christ had commanded. Let's look now at the recipients. Presumably, Peter is writing to the people he addressed in his first letter. And we know it could be some other group of people, but most likely it's the people he wrote to in the beginning or in First Peter because he doesn't include a list of recipients as he did in the first letter. If you remember in First Peter, he said he's writing to people all over Turkey, he mentions a number of different regions. And if he did that in that letter, you'd expect him to do it in the second unless they had already received a letter. And he mentions he had written to them previously in chapter 3, verse 1. So it's reasonable to believe this is just the second letter he's writing. And I believe that is the case. Peter identifies the recipients not by name or even by their region or their city like some other letters will do. He doesn't refer to them by their name or city, but what they have received to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's unpack that, that, that phrase because it's, the, the fact that he doesn't just mention their name or their city tells us something about what he's trying to communicate, what's important to him, how he sees them. Let's look at, first at the phrase, who have obtained a faith. Peter identifies them as people who are in possession of faith. And the passive nature of that verb demonstrates that it was something they received versus something they attained. It was something given to them. They obtained faith. It was a gift. Something received versus achieved. This corresponds to Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. Faith is a gift. Moreover, faith is something that is substantial. It's substantial. Faith refers not to some whimsical hope or some just vague belief in some higher power. It's faith in something. It refers to belief in a body of truth. And if you look how this term is used in Scripture, and even here in Second Peter, it shows that he's not simply referring to belief in God, but confidence in God and confidence in His revealed will. So the faith isn't just, I believe that there's a God out there, but it's faith in God and what God has revealed. So if you, if you look, I have some Scriptures up on the, on the screen, 41 times in the New Testament, the word faith is used to describe the content of Christian teaching. Content of Christian teaching. Note some of these. 1 Timothy 4.1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith. So they're departing from the faith. How do they do that? Devoting themselves to deceitful spirits. Teachings of demons. Colossians 2, 6 and 7. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, notice the next phrase, just as you were taught. Faith was something they were taught. 
If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ, being trained in the words of faith and the good doctrine that you have followed. Titus 1.13, this testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. That word sound describes that they might have an accurate understanding of the faith. So to be clear, this is not how Peter is using the term, though. He's not using the term defining a body of teaching. But it clarifies what the faith is in. The fact that those two, the, the word is used both to describe a body of teaching also helps you understand what that faith is in. It's not just simply belief. I mean, everybody believes something. There's nobody who doesn't have faith. I mean, their faith might be in themselves. It might be that the sun's going to rise today. Everybody has faith. This, a Christian's faith is in God and what he has revealed. Faith in God is to take God at his word. And... I want to look at this just a little bit closer. Please turn to Romans 4.18 with me. One of my favorite passages in Scripture. And it clarifies what faith is. And this is describing Abraham and how Abraham was saved. It says, beginning of verse 18, In hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told so shall your offspring be. So he was, he was t- given this promise by God. Verse 19. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. You see, Abraham just didn't believe that there was some God out there. He believed in what God said. He was saved because he took God at his word. His faith in God was demonstrated in believing what God had promised. Thank you. (laughs) I've achieved it. Going for level two. So faith and salvation is taking God at his word. It's a belief in the totality of God's word. Initially believed in the hearing of the gospel. Right? We, you, we, we have faith when we believe the gospel as we hear it. But that's just the beginning. Just like Abraham believed and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Likewise, we too believe what God says and it's accounted to us as righteousness. We, somebody proclaims the gospel to us and we say, yes, that's true. I believe it. But in doing so, it's not just I believe that. What you're doing is you're believing God and his word. True believers receive the truth when they hear it. Look at John 10:24. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. So Jesus told them the truth about who he was and they wouldn't receive it. The works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice 
and I know them and they follow me. See how sheep are distinguished? They hear his voice. They know what is true and they follow the truth. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and none will snatch them out of my hand. But they're distinguished because they hear his voice and embrace it. So one clear way to know a false believer or a false teacher is because they reject either all of Scripture or some portion of Scripture. They may say something like, I can't believe in a God who allows this. I can't believe in a God that allows this. You know, they have something that they see in the Word of God and they say, I can't believe that. I can't believe in a God that would do that. And they're right. They can't. They need God to give them faith because they're enslaved to their own idolatry. They want to worship a God of their own image, a God of their own creation. They want to worship the God that they want to worship. They want to define God, not simply accept him for who he is and submit to him as he's revealed himself. And of course, this doesn't mean that all believers are going to agree on every doctrine. But it does mean that a true believer's faith will rest on Scripture. Their faith rests on Scripture, on God's revealed truth. Their convictions will be derived from the Word of God, not from personal conjecture, not from personal desire. Somebody might say, well, wait a second. A person only needs to believe in Jesus to be saved. They don't need to believe everything. They just need to believe in Jesus. Well, that's true, depending upon what they mean by that. If they mean a person, in order to be saved, only needs to trust in Jesus for salvation, they can't trust in their works also, Christ alone is what saves, well, that's absolutely true. But if what they mean is all they need to believe is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, and that's it. They can reject everything else that the Bible teaches? That's absolutely false. To believe in Jesus, to believe all of His revelation as it's given in Scripture. My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. True believers can be genuinely confused. They can be genuinely ignorant. They can be genuinely led astray. They can have genuine conflict over things that they see in Scripture, have a hard time accepting something. We all go through stages. We, 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 this doctrine is confusing. It doesn't make sense. Or there's something that, that's revealed and emotionally it's just hard to accept. I mean, something like the doctrine of hell. I mean, it's okay if you're a believer and you have a hard time accepting the doctrine of hell. Now, to say, well, that can't be true, that's a problem. But because it's so t- terrifying and horrible, well, it is. It is, and that's a, a good response. It should be so, so much that, that even something like the doctrine of hell should be so repulsive to you. You should want to do everything you can to keep people from going there. But that's not right to reject it as so many people have. If it's revealed in the Word of God, it's true. So a person may not like something the Bible says. They might have difficulty believing or understanding how a doctor might play itself out. But they won't reject what the Bible says as false. 
they believe in Jesus, they will accept his word. False believers reject the word of truth. But what about those who want to add to the word of truth? Well, look at the next phrase. As Peter says, describes them, those who have obtained a faith, second phrase, of equal standing with ours. Describes the sufficiency of their faith. The faith of the recipients is of the same quality and substance as the apostles' faith. And presumably that's who the first person plural is referring to, the, the apostles. So what I want to show you is Peter's going out of his way to emphasize that they are not lacking in anything, even though they're not apostles. So whether they got saved because they heard uh, the, the gospel from Christ initially or because they heard the, the preaching of the apostles or because they read about the gospel in one of their letters, they're not deficient in anything. They're not second-class citizens in the kingdom of heaven. There is no such thing as a super-Christian, although some false teachers would want to lead them astray to think there is. They might say something like, if you have greater faith and follow my teaching, I will give you greater insight into the truth. Or if you have greater faith and follow my teaching, you will have a more successful Christian life. If you have greater faith and follow me, you will be able to enjoy the pleasures of this life and have hope in the next. If you have greater faith, you will be able to have victory over all your sins. These are all common false teachings that were around then and are around today. See, these believers have no need of additional faith because the substance of a Christian's faith is the same. The faith of the apostles is the same as the recipients of this letter, is the same as the faith of every Christian throughout history. They are saved because they take God at His word. So those who believe in Jesus aren't lacking in anything. They're not lesser than the apostles or any other great Christian because their faith is in the same thing. And that's what makes it substantial. And I think it's doubt regarding this truth that somewhat developed Paul's concern in his letter to the Corinthians. You remember when in Corinth, the Corinthians were boasting that they had been baptized by Paul or by Apollos or uh, they, they said, they, I follow Christ. You know, there's divisions within them. And he writes them and says, I went out of my way when I preached the gospel to you to only preach Christ and him crucified. He says, I was weak with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I wanted you to believe what I'm telling you, not believe me because I'm the one sharing it. What matters isn't me. What matters is what I'm teaching you. Believe the revealed word of God. Believe the gospel. That's what matters. As he says later on in chapter 3 of that letter. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What then is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God gives the growth. The false teachers would have them believe something else. What matters is who you follow, not what you believe. So follow me. 
That's what they're teaching. They're wanting to lead them astray by preying upon their insecurity. They feel weak or they're troubled by something. And so the false teacher would lead them away from the word of God to follow them and their teaching. And we're constantly in danger of listening to the fleshly impulse to set ourselves apart from one another, to become more holy than another person. Either by identifying with a certain leader or following a certain code of conduct or some tradition, etc. We like to set ourselves apart to be better Christians so that, Peter would respect, or so that people would respect us more, admire us more. So the insecurity or pride wins the day and then you have divisions resulting. Because people are no longer focused upon what unites them, their common faith but instead trying to set themselves apart from one another. But if the substance of our faith is the same, Jesus and his truth, our faith in him is equal. We're all the same. No one is better or more secure or more anything. That's the beauty of the, 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 the phrase that Paul uses again and again in his epistle. You're in Christ. You're secure in Christ. And that gets clarified in the next phrase. They, are, they have faith by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The word by is what's key here. They receive faith through the righteous life of Christ. He fulfilled the perfect law. He died in our place. And we are saved through His righteousness. As Romans 5.19 says, For as by the one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. We are made righteous through his righteousness. His righteousness is imputed to us. So we believe we can be saved from the condemnation of the law, from the wrath of God, from our slavery to sin, through or by, as Peter uses the word here, his fulfillment of the law, By living a righteous life and then dying in our place. And that's why Peter describes him as our God and Savior. See, only the death of the Son of God would be sufficient, effective enough to save a world of lost sinners. So Peter describes his recipients in this way in order to establish them, in order to orient them in regard to the substance of the letter that he's about to write. His description of them is, in essence, the point he's trying to make to them. If Christ is sufficient, you lack nothing. If Christ is your righteousness, you are in need of no additional righteousness. He's sufficient. Therefore, hold fast to what you have believed in hearing from us. Don't be drawn away to follow these false teachers. Which brings us again to the purpose of this short letter. Peter actually declares his purpose very explicitly in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, This is now my second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. And in both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. He's just reminding them of things they already know. That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. He's reminding them of what they had been taught. Body of truth. 
Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, wanting to lure people away by capturing them according to their sinful desires. So, how do how does people how does Peter guard his recipients from being led away by these false teachers? He tips his hat in his, in the phrase that he uses in verse two, chapter one, verse two. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. The phrase grace and knowledge is, is um, the series title we're given to Second Peter. And it comes from the opening and closing passages of this epistle. Verse 2, and if you look also at, at the very last passage of chapter 3, Peter writes, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Right? He, he, the way to get, keep them from get, being led astray is by growing in grace and knowledge. He wants them to hold fast to the truths they've received in light of these false teachers. So what, what is this threat? Who are these false teachers? What do they teach? I'm just going to give you really quick um, summary of some of their teachings as they come up in the in the epistle. Um, essentially, they're false teachers that would lead them away from the truth, and this is how they're described. In chapter two, verses one and two, they're described as being heretical. They teach heresy, and they're immoral. They're also boastful. They would entice by sensual passions of the flesh as well. They're greedy. He says, they will, in their greed, exploit you with false words. And apparently they blaspheme angelic beings. We'll look at each of those phrases as we go through the book to get a little more clarity on what he means. And what's remarkable here is many descriptions Peter uses about these false teachers are parallel with those in Jude. So there's another slide that shows how the same descriptions that Peter uses of the false teachers, Jude uses as well. If you want to go to the next slide, I think maybe back. Oh, keep going. Next one. Nope, back. Sorry. Sorry, Megan. Okay, yeah, that, there you go. Thank you. Appreciate it, Megan. Megan's got a tough job today. I gave her a number of different slides, but so sorry for picking on you. So going back to my introduction... What is Peter's solution? What is his admonition to help guard his friends from this threat? Likewise, what is it that we can do to keep ourselves from wandering away from the truth? And he actually summarizes the solution in verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God. Let's look at each of those words. Grace. It says grace is multiplied as knowledge increases. So what is meant by grace? Grace typically refers to the free gift of salvation. We looked at that already in Ephesians 2. Described as grace because salvation is not something that's earned. It's something that's given. It's the gift of God. But since Christ, since the grace that we have in Christ was given to us at the cross, how is it, how is it that Peter can say 
let grace be multiplied to you. How could you increase the grace that was given there? So I don't think grace is referring specifically to that, but grace refers rather to God's blessing, his power that is given to his children, resulting in spiritual fruit in their life. It's the power of God, the grace that's given to, um, to, 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 to lead to a fruitful life. So the grace that saved is also the grace that sanctifies. This is another way of thinking about it. It's power and it's practice. The power to be able to live out the, a godly life. So he says, may that grace be multiplied to you. But he also mentions peace. So if grace is the outward effect, think of peace as the inward effect. This is referring to the spiritual of peace that comes upon a person's soul when they recognize the truths, God's word, that Christ is sufficient, that God is sovereign, that God is good, and so that we will totally be taken care of, even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, or when we're feeling insecure and we are, are, are prone to follow false teachers or to yield to sin. We can trust in the Lord. It gives us peace. We can have peace that the work of Christ is sufficient. And that his word is true. But the key thing I want you to recognize is how this grace and peace is achieved. As Peter says, in knowledge. Which may be surprising. It was surprising to me when I first saw it. What sort of knowledge is he talking about? Well, certainly he's not talking about just general knowledge. Learn as much as you can about the stars and the cosmos and Go back to school, take math, get a math degree. It's, it's not just general knowledge. It's specific. And it's specified as no, the knowledge of God. Referring to God the Father there. And Jesus our Lord. John MacArthur said this about this knowledge. He says, it's the knowledge that brings salvation. The knowledge that brings salvation derives not from feelings, intuition, emotion, or personal experience. But only from the revealed truth based on the gospel, preached in and from the word. And he references Romans 10:17, Knowing the Lord and salvation is the starting point. The rest of a believer's life is a pursuit of greater knowledge of the glory of the Lord and of his grace. And this concept of knowledge comes up again and again and again throughout Second Peter. It's a strong emphasis. So it should stand out as we read it. And I want to just show that, particularly in... Chapter 3, or sorry, chapter 1, verse 3 through 12. Notice how he uses knowledge. And in this section, he's really describing growth in Christianity. As he says, his divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. We have everything that we need through the knowledge of him who called us into his own glory and excellence. Go to verse 5. It says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and your virtue with knowledge. And knowledge with self-control. He uses it again in verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see the connection between knowledge and living out our Christian faith. Therefore, verse 12, therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. So they already know these things. Peter just wants to remind them, you have all that you need 
in the revealed word that's been preached to you, that you've received, stick to it. Just believe it. Stand fast in what you've received. And this is essentially his argument that he makes to guard them from being led away from the false teachers. One grows in godly living, that is grace, and enjoys spiritual peace as they grow in understanding the truths of Scripture, thereby guarding themselves from false teachers and ungodly living. I'll stay at the end. This is essentially Peter's argument in the letter. One grows in godly living and enjoys spiritual peace as they grow in understanding the truths of Scripture, thereby guarding themselves from false teachers and ungodly living. His solution, Peter's solution to not being led astray by these false teachers is read the word. Remember what you've been taught. Hold fast to it. And the logic of Peter is summarized really in the last paragraph of this letter. So please go there. This is beginning in verse 14. Second Peter verse, chapter 3, verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found without, by him without spot or blemish. That is grace. Be diligent to, to live out your, your faith. And at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved Paul, brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. As he does in all his letters when he speaks of them in these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away. So you see what he's describing there? Knowledge. He's even referring to what Paul had taught them, what they'd received from the Apostle Paul. Don't be, you have what you need. Don't be led astray. Take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your stability. So how do they guard themselves from this false teaching? Verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. All right. So at this point, I just want to give you an, a summary of First Peter to help you see Peter's argument in an outline. And this is essentially it. So this is Peter's argument. He says that, actually first I want to say this, you will notice that in my outline I utilize the word faith. And I utilize the word faith because it represents the concept of salvific truth just as Peter does, and mainly because Peter does, but also because we use it today to represent both the substance of salvation and a body of truth. We are saved through faith, but we also saved in faith in something, right? So it's a, faith is both um, belief in something, but it's also a body of truth, right? And that's how Peter uses this concept. So you could really, in the outline, insert salvation or knowledge or gospel as well. But I think this will become clear as you look at the outline. So this is his argument. He describes the effects of faith. That is, faith produces genuine fruit. You need to be, they need to be reminded of the faith, what they've been taught. Reasons of confidence in the faith, again, what they've been taught. And then chapter 2, he warns of attacks upon the faith with false teachers and then the de- description of the false teachers, the condemnation. And finally, in chapter 3, he's going to say, live in light of the Lord's return. Don't live like the false teachers would have you live in immorality, 
but live lives of holiness. And therefore, diligently pursue holiness to keep yourself from following, falling astray to these false teachers. That's his argument. What I want you to walk away with is the way to grow in grace, in holiness, and not be led astray is really simple. Remember what you've received. That's why the Word of God is so important for us to, to constantly remind ourselves what is the truth and to hold fast to that truth because that's what keeps us from being led astray. That's not bibliolatry. That's worshiping God as we understand what He's taught us. I want to close by looking at the psalm again. Psalm 1 that we read earlier today. So I think it greatly summarizes Peter's heart here. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Again, that's how these false teachers are described in chapter 3, as scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. What's the result of that law? He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. But the wicked are not so. They're like chaff that is blown away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, which is again described in chapter 3 of Second Peter, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. Lord, help us to grow in grace. That grace and peace would be multiplied to us as we increase in our understanding of what You've revealed to us. We grow in our understanding of You and Your purposes and Your plans. Strengthen us that we would not be led astray by various false teachings. We'd hold fast to your word. As it is your word, your revealed truth. Lord, I pray that you'd bless us abundantly as we study Second Peter this year. We'd be encouraged and built up. And it would, it would increase our joy. It would increase our worship. We ask these things in your name. Amen. So we come.